You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. It took a Minneapolis jury just over 10 hours to find ex-police officer Derek Chauvin guilty of murdering George Floyd. The killing and video evidence of Chauvin kneeling on Mr Floyd's neck for over nine minutes shook the nation and sparked a movement. The New York Times called the verdict a rare rebuke of police conduct following decades of police officers going without charges or convictions after killing black men, women and children. Here's how the verdict was announced. We the jury in the above entitled matter as to count one unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April 2021 at 1.44 p.m. Signed juror four-person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count two. We the jury in the above entitled matter as to count two, third-degree murder perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April 2021 at 1.45 p.m. Signed by jury four-person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count three. We the jury in the above entitled matter as to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April 2021 at 1.45 p.m. Jury four-person, 019. Our correspondent, Brian O'Donovan, is in Minneapolis and he's been describing the scene as the jury brought back those guilty verdicts. Hennepin County Courthouse is in downtown Minneapolis. Normally would be a busy, bustling part of the city, but not yesterday. It was very, very quiet. A massive security presence, armed National Guard troops, military trucks, fencing. There were no protesters, no members of the public. But there was a very tense atmosphere, a sense of anticipation that something was coming. Now, it was announced around an hour in advance that this verdict would be coming and word spread quickly. So in a very short space of time, we saw a large crowd starting to gather outside the courthouse. They watched on their phones as Judge Peter Cahill read the jury's verdicts aloud. Guilty on all three counts. Second degree murder, third degree murder and manslaughter. This huge cheer went up from the crowd. People wept. They hugged each other. Passing cars started beeping their horns. Inside the courtroom, Derek Chauvin didn't react in any obvious way as the verdicts were read out. He was handcuffed, taken into custody, and he will be sentenced in eight weeks' time. Now, outside on the street, many of the people I spoke to said they were very relieved. Many of them said they did not expect guilty verdicts because it is unusual and quite difficult to secure a conviction of a police officer in these types of cases. The people I met said that while they were celebrating this win, there were still lots of other African Americans who had suffered at the hands of police and that there is a long road ahead. What is your reaction to this evening's verdict? Um, well, it's ecstatic. It's surreal, really. But this is just the first stepping stone into getting justice for black people and police brutality. I am overjoyed. I feel like finally America for 400 years has been in desperate need of a heart transplant. I feel like the judge and the jury finally diagnosed it. Now it's time for us to get to groundwork and do the actual work it takes to build this community up here in America to make sure that African Americans and people of color and the marginalized and the voiceless actually have a voice in this country. Today's a step in the right direction. A step in the right direction, but still a lot more work to do, you would say? Absolutely. This only cranked the car up for the very long journey that we've got to take as a country. And Brian, how did George Floyd's family react to those three guilty verdicts? 
Well, immediately after the verdict, Mary, George Floyd's brother, Philonis, said he was praying for a guilty verdict and that he was worried because he said, as an African-American, we usually don't get justice. He told a press conference that the family felt they could finally breathe again. Remember, of course, George Floyd's dying words were, I can't breathe, as Derek Chauvin knelt on his neck for more than nine minutes. It was captured on a video that went viral and sparked a global protest movement. Now, the defence tried to implant doubt in the jury's minds by suggesting that drug use or an underlying health condition might have been the cause of death, but the prosecution had that shocking piece of video footage as their strongest piece of evidence, and they told the jurors, believe your eyes, trust your instincts, remember the feelings you first felt when you saw that video, and use your common sense. Now, the US President Joe Biden called George Floyd's family immediately after the verdict came in, and he said, now at least there is some sense of justice. Earlier, and rather controversially, Joe Biden had taken a very unusual step of expressing his views on the trial before the jury had come back, and he said he was praying for the right verdict. He and the Vice President Kamala Harris delivered a joint address to the nation last night. They both spoke about the problem of systemic racism here in the U.S., and they both called on Congress to pass police reform legislation. Today, we feel a sigh of relief. Still, it cannot take away the pain. A measure of justice isn't the same as equal justice. This verdict brings us a step closer, and the fact is, we still have work to do. We still must reform the system. America has a long history of systemic racism. It was a murder, in the full light of day, and it ripped the blinders off for the whole world to see the systemic racism the Vice President just referred to. The systemic racism is a stain on our nation's soul. <clears throat> the knee on the neck of justice for black Americans. Profound fear and trauma. The pain, the exhaustion that black and brown Americans experience every single day. President Biden reacting there. And of course, Brian, this isn't the end of this investigation or the criminal proceedings. There are other police officers to face trial. That's right, Mary. There are three other now former police officers who were involved in George Floyd's arrest that day and were in one way or another involved in that restraining. They've been charged with aiding and abetting second-degree murder and aiding and abetting second-degree manslaughter. They've all pleaded not guilty. Their trial will be held in the summer. It may, of course, also not be the end of the road for Derek Chauvin when it comes to his case. He is expected to appeal and he will no doubt make reference to this massive publicity surrounding the case and will no doubt claim that this could have tainted the jury Earlier this week, the trial judge criticised the fact that politicians had been making public statements on this case and said that that could well be grounds for an appeal in the future. For now, however, those who felt so upset and so hurt and so angry when they saw George Floyd take his last breaths will themselves be breathing a sigh of relief. Our correspondent Brian O'Donovan reporting from Minneapolis.
They feared for their very lives. Two women in different parts of the country at different times experienced sustained harassment by two different men, which culminated in both men bringing their terror to the women's homes. Eve McDowell from Sligo and Una Ring from Cork have come together to drive a new campaign for a law which would define stalking as a standalone crime and for longer jail sentences. Their attackers are in jail, each sentenced to a total of seven years with the final two suspended. Their stories are in today's Irish Examiner and we are going to speak to Eve and to Una now who are going to tell us what happened to them, the impact it has had and still has on them and why they want the government to change the law. Eve and Una, you're both very welcome and thank you for joining us and I'm very conscious that we are asking you to recount an extremely traumatic time in your lives. So if at any point during this interview you wish to pause, that's absolutely fine. Um, Eve, I'll start with you. You were a student in NUI Galway in May of 2019 when your attacker began his campaign of stalking and harassment. When did you first notice that he was taking a, a very unhealthy and unwanted interest in you? Um, I suppose I noticed it got really, you know, out of hand. Um, there was one day I was in work and I noticed him outside at half nine in the morning. Um, then later on, I went for my lunch that day and I could see him outside the restaurant that I went to. Um, I went back to Air Square then and I could see him again. Um, all of these times he wasn't approaching me. He was kind of just looking from a distance. Um, at this point, I had noticed him hanging around a little bit, but wasn't too sure, you know, was a coincidence or not. So I had notified some friends and then I had went back to work after lunch at four o'clock that day then. Uh, my friend called in to me to let me know that she could see him outside the shop sitting on the bench looking in. Um, and then after work, I went to the pub with my friends and I was kind of telling them about what had happened. Um, shortly enough, then he popped up again inside the pub. So we moved to another pub and we got a window seat and we could just see him walking up and down um, for about half an hour trying to look in and see where I was. Then after that, I went to McDonald's and... He was outside there again, so me and my friend went to confront him and um, she found him hiding, crouched down behind a car and asked what he was doing, why he was following me and he ran away laughing. And then uh, my friends were walking me home and he popped up again on the walk home. I suppose that's when I was very alarmed. Did you know him, Eve? I mean, was he a stranger to you? Um, no, he was kind of like a mutual friend of a mutual friend. We were in the same college accommodation in first year, so it was a small enough accommodation. Um, you do get to know people, but um, never really had one-on-one -on -one conversations with him before that, apart from maybe if he, he used to come into the shop I worked in sometimes. But, you know, it wouldn't be anything past conversation at the till. So May 27th, what happened? Um, I think I had been at home for a while. I went home for a week just to get away from it all. And I went into town with my boyfriend at the time to get food. And when we came back into the estate, I could see him at the bushes opposite my house, crouching down hiding. So I ran inside and rang the guards. They came and they took statements that night. Then I was just awake all night, couldn't sleep. I just had a feeling something was up. I kept thinking I could hear something outside. Then um, my housemate was sleeping on the couch 
Uh, I got up to go to the bathroom at about 10 to 7 and that woke her up. So she opened the balcony door for some air because she was really warm. And then as she was falling back to sleep, um, she heard the floorboards creaking and she looked up and he was halfway across the sitting room. He had a hammer in his hand and I could hear her shouting from the sitting room. Oh my God, it's him. Get out, get out. And what did you do, Eve? Um, at that point, I just, yeah, went into total shock. Jumped up and kind of locked my bedroom door and then opened it to see was she all right. Um, we called the guards instantly. Um, my other housemate that was upstairs was down as well. We just all locked ourselves into my bedroom. We were pushing furniture up against the door. We didn't, you know, she, she came in holding a hammer. We didn't know where he was gone. He had jumped off the balcony, but um, we weren't sure whether he was going to get back in or, you know, it was really frightening. We didn't know what was going to happen next. The guards eventually came back then about half an hour later saying that they had um, they had found him crawling up the road behind our estate. And he was caught and prosecuted and convicted. And he's in jail now. I'll come back to you, even in, in just a few moments uh, to, to find out about the impact all of this has had on you. Um, Una, you're very welcome to the programme this morning. Um, your terror lasted for around six months, I think, of 2020. When did you first encounter your attacker? Well, he was a work colleague, um, so I had been working with him for approximately 18 months um, and he left um, our employment in February of last year and within um, a day or two he, he was ringing me to try and get me to meet him in his new place of employment. Um, the first time he rang me he was looking to hand over his um, his projects and I, was, I asked him to meet me in, in our old office because... All the paperwork was there. Um, then he rang me and he was offering me a job and he wanted me to meet him to discuss the uh, a position in his new company. And again, I was like, I'm very happy here. And then he rang me a third time and he asked me to um, help him out with um, getting stuff ready for an, an exhibition. So I agreed to meet him and when I met him, he um, made advances on me, um, which were completely unwanted. I told him I thought he was married. He said he was separated. I told him I wasn't interested. Um, and the following morning, then the messaging started and he was messaging me for approximately six weeks. And I was ignoring them. If there was any work-related ones uh, tailing off the, his, his position, um, I, I responded to those, but otherwise I ignored them, thinking that he'd get bored and stop. Um, that had quite the opposite effect. He was, he was starting to get really irate. And on the 1st of April, he said that he was going to come to my house because I wasn't answering his messages. Um, no, I didn't think he knew where I lived, um, but um, he did. So I told him not to contact me again. I told him to leave me alone. And then he went quiet. Um, but I was very unnerved by what had happened, um, what he had done to me and by the messaging and the, the threat of coming to my home. So I did go to the guards in June of last year. Just I just wanted to report it. Um, and then on July 7th, I woke up and my car wheels were pink. Um, the 13th of July, my house window had been sprayed with X's and O's and I win was 
written across the windowsill. And the following morning, I found a letter under the windscreen wiper of my car, um, just saying that he was watching me um, and that I should wear more dresses and he was looking forward to our moment and just very creepy. And then I put in CCTV cameras and the guards at this stage were doing um, patrols in, in, in the park where I live a couple of times a night. And then... Um, on the 23rd of July he left the second letter which was very threatening he threatened to break in and rape me and my daughter and so the guards set up a surveillance operation outside my home um, from 12 midnight until 5am and then on the 27th he was arrested on my property um, with the crowbar, duct tape, rope he had block picking equipment in his car um, and he had an 11 inch dildo strapped to himself and yeah it was just it was it was very 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 traumatic the whole episode from from start to finish basically was very very traumatic did you fear at any point that he might kill you i did i did uh, he had done research um for online for chloroform but i had decided um that if it was going to continue, that I was going to get a tattoo with my name, my town name and my date of birth um, in preparation for being killed, basically. So that if my body was found pretty quickly, that they, they'd be able to identify me pretty quickly. Because, like, I I knew his end, what his end game was. I, I, I knew he was intent on raping me. But the fact that I would know who he was, he he, he, he I, I felt that he would have killed me. Um it was very, very traumatic. It's like, uh, you know, on the nature shows when, when we say the, the, the antelope is drinking from, from the stream and their their eyes are constantly looking around waiting for something to pounce on them. That's the way it is. You're, you're just, you can't relax. You can't relax at any stage, morning, noon or night. You're always on high alert. You're always waiting because you know that something is going to happen and you just don't know when. So you're just constantly waiting for it. Eve, did you feel the same? Did you feel that your life was in danger? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, he showed up to my house one time and tried to get in the door. Um, he was outside my bedroom window with his beard shaved off, his eyebrows shaved off and his hair shaved off. You know, just you're dealing with someone who's completely unpredictable. Um, you do you do think the worst and I do think that my life was in danger, definitely. Constantly on high alert. And what impact has it had on you since? I mean, he's in prison now. Do you feel any safer? Um, it comes along like it takes a long time to come to terms with the fact they actually are in prison. I think it does take a while for that to settle in. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm constantly as I'm not looking out as much, but it's still always there in the back of your mind. And as well, you're just thinking, what happens when they get out? What What's the next move then? Do you have to hide away? Do you have to keep your life really private and? Be careful about where you live. Am I going to have to move? All of these things, you know, go through your head often. Una, have you changed since all of this happened? I have. Um, I'm very wary when I'm talking to males in particular. Um, I'm very careful of how I speak to them. And even afterwards, I, I will go back over conversations and think, like, did I say anything that could be misconstrued? Did I come across too friendly? Um, I just have lost faith in how I deal with people because you do get the sense of, had I done something to 
draw him on me, we'll say, for want of a better expression. Even though I know my heart and soul, I didn't. You do feel, did I, did I, did I do something? You know, and it does change how you think. And even now, like when I get into the car, I lock the door straight away. I check the back before I get into the car. I check my back door and front door continuously to make sure they're locked. Um, and still, like when, like there was, my aunt had sent me flowers on, on Easter Saturday and I just, do you know, when, th- when things like that are sent to you, you do say, you know, is, is it from somebody strange or, you know, you just, you still, it's still on your mind. And like, I do still see him around, even though I know it can't possibly be him, but somebody who looks like him, um, would actually, it would frighten me, you know, and I just, I, I do still see him around and it's very hard to, um, I suppose, to move on from it really, you know, and I dream about him an awful lot. Just strange dreams, like I dreamt that my boss had rehired him even after everything that had happened and, you know, these kind of strange dreams, like he's he's just popping up in my subconscious, I suppose, as well as, you know, I think I see him physically around, you know. They're both in jail. They both got sentenced to seven years with the final two suspended. They were sentenced for um, harassment, but that was the lesser portion of the sentence. That was around three and a half years. The other more serious, um, the longer sentences rather were for, in your case, Una, attempted burglary with intent to rape and Eve for aggravated burglary and assault. Why, Eve, do you want the government to make stalking a separate offence? It needs to be recognised as a crime. You know, it's not... The the, the word stalking isn't in the Non-Fatal Offences to the Person Act. It's just not there. It's not recognised. It is far more sinister than harassment. You know, it's a pattern of fixated, obsessive behaviour and it's repeated, it's persistent, it's completely intrusive. Um, you know, Scotland have done it and the results there have really helped a lot of women and men as well. I think it's really important that the guards have the tools to intervene in the early stages so that it can be, you know, it, hopefully we can prevent anyone having to go through what me and Una went through. Una, I'll read a, a statement we got from the Department of Justice to you and you can, you can tell us what, what you think of it. They, they told us last night that the creation of a distinct offence of stalking was carefully examined by the department in the context of the harassment, harmful communications and related offences act of 2020 and follow consultations with various stakeholders and an in-depth examination of the current offence of harassment. It was clear that stalking behaviour is already encompassed in the current offence of harassment under Section 10 of the Non-Fatal Offences Against the Persons Act 1997. And in lieu of introducing a distinct offence of stalking, Section 10 of that Act was strengthened substantially to 10 years imprisonment, which they say reflects the harm caused by those who engage in the most serious forms of harassment. What do you say in response to that? Um, well, I don't, I still don't think it's, um, it's har- harassment is, is good enough. Like, the way I feel about even my case, like when he was messaging me, that's that that's harassment. But when he came to my home um, on on five different occasions, a four hour round trip, like that is stalking. That is far above and beyond um, harassment. And I think when somebody is continuously following somebody, 
you know, um, staying outside their, their workplace for eight hours, as in Eve's case, like, that is stalking. That that goes well beyond harassment. And, like, they're saying about the, the ten years, like, our, our guys got the exact same sentence. Um, but, like, the five years that James Steele got, he's going to be out in 2024. I already have his, his due release date. So he's going to serve three. So, like, seven years reduced to five, he'll only serve three. So really, you you can knock fifty percent off a sentence. So if they sentence somebody to to ten years, it's it's only really going to be five, and it's not enough. It's 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 not enough. And I mean, stalking has to be like if somebody is killed, you have involuntary manslaughter. You've manslaughter. You've murder three, murder two, murder one, um, and 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 these cases should be the same. They should be more defined where harassment is. I believe should be messaging, phone calls, emails. Um, but I think once somebody crosses your threshold onto your property or is continuously following you, aggressively following you, turning up at your workplace, then that is stalking. And I think it needs to be more defined and the guards need to have more power um, in, in, I suppose, confronting people and, um, you know, telling them to stay away from people. And, and you know, they... they they should only get one chance of that. And if they do, like in, in Eve's case, they confronted the, the, the stalker, the guards cautioned him and he still came back. You know, so obviously it what's there at the moment isn't working. I know, I know, I suppose we got our day in court, but I feel if there was an actual stalking law, we would have got more justice. We're very grateful to you both for talking to us this morning about a very, very difficult time in your lives. And thank you so much for doing it. Una Ring and Eve McDowell. And if you've been impacted by this story, there are there is help available and details of that support can be found at rte.ie forward slash helplines. And we're going to talk about India now, which is grappling with a huge surge in COVID-19 infections. India is now reporting the highest daily rates of any country in the world since the pandemic began. More than 315,000 new infections yesterday, thousands dying daily and hospitals running out of beds and oxygen. Mandakini Gelo is Channel 4 News correspondent in India. And Mandakini, we've seen truly horrific TV pictures and the reports coming out of India. Describe to our listeners just how bad the situation is this morning. Thank you, Anir, for uh, inviting me. Uh, Our cities are under siege. I've never witnessed anything like this. At the heart of the problem is that our healthcare system has collapsed, just absolutely shattered. Um, As you said, there are just you know, for love of God or money, it's impossible to get a hospital bed right now if you are in one of the larger metro cities. Uh, there are no beds, there's no oxygen, there are no ventilators, and uh, each morning just brings with it a string of bad news of the kind that we've never seen. Now, according to the WHO's own estimate, one out of every three patients in the world uh suffering from coronavirus are in India and our healthcare system is just not able to handle it. Uh, one of the largest hospitals in New Delhi, uh, the Sir Gangaram Hospital, usually a 
very good hospital. Lost 25 patients last night because uh, they had to lower the level at which they were giving these patients oxygen because they had only about two hours of supplies left. In Mumbai, as you've no doubt seen, uh, there was a fire at a hospital which just made things so much worse. I mean, it's really hard for me to describe what's going on. It's extraordinary. We have private hospitals approaching uh, the, uh, the judicial system, the courts, uh, appealing that uh, oxygen be delivered to them. They're doing that because the government is missing in action. Uh, appeals to the government are not resulting in, uh, you know, oxygen getting to places in time. And meanwhile, everyone's losing friends and colleagues and loved ones. And um, a lot of those deaths are very, very young people. So a really terrible tragedy unfolding here in India. And absolutely no doubt in my mind that the way this, this pandemic will come to be defined by what happens in India over the next few days and weeks. And how, Mandakini, did it go so wrong? India is one of the world leaders in vaccines. Absolutely. Um, well, a part of it is complacency. Uh, by January, India had one of the lowest infection rates anywhere in the world. And the government chose to declare victory rather triumphantly. And of course, everything went back to normal very quickly. Now, experts all agree it shouldn't have happened like that. Not only did offices and, uh, you know, sort of uh, schools, etc. start reopening, but we also started handing out permissions for huge, massive religious gatherings. For uh, We started doing uh, election rallies. In fact, even now, the Home Minister of India, Mr. Amit Shah, conducted a public rally yesterday in West Bengal. Uh, so the government sort of shifted its focus towards election electioneering and campaigning. And uh, some of these large massive events like the Kumbh Mela, which is a Hindu religious gathering that began at the beginning of April, and by the way, has not yet been cancelled. Some of these, uh, you know, events triggered a second wave. Um, now, the vaccine question, uh, I imagine a lot of heads are going to roll uh, in the coming weeks and months, because honestly, like you said, the world's largest producer and you cannot get a vaccine here. You just cannot. Um, my mother, for example, has had her first shot and we're not sure she'll get the second one. Now, why is that happening? The government, uh, to start with, didn't place enough orders. They only ordered something like 100 million vaccines from the Serum Institute of India and allowed the rest to be exported, which you know, India has to play that role. India has to export. But they just didn't, didn't sort of uh, accumulate enough for our own people. Mm -hmm. Now the Prime Minister has announced that vaccinations will open to everyone above the age of 18 by May 1st. Right now, it's only people above 45. But we know that even those who qualify right now are not able to get one. So it's rather wishful that they will, you know, magically everyone will get a vaccine on May 1st. And finally, Mandakini, um, th the question, is there a new variant that's driving this surge in India or is it those super spreading events you've described? Um, it's, I, I would have to say, uh, based on my conversations with epidemiologists and experts, that it's a combination of the both. There is a uniquely Indian strain, the B1617, now prevalent in many countries, including 
the UK. Unfortunately, scientists don't know enough about it yet. We don't know uh, its, uh, you know, transmissibility, its lethality, whether vaccines work with it. But it is a strain that's spreading very quickly. But again, it's so difficult to get accurate data here. Even the mortality rate that you're seeing is so underrepresented that it's just hard to say whether it's the strain or whether it's the super spreader events. It's just a combination of those things combined with government complacency and combined with the complacency at the level of the citizens who started to, you know, take the masks off and go back to normal. So I'd say it's a bunch of factors that's contributing to this wave. Well, thank you for describing it so eloquently to us this morning. Mandakini Gallo, Channel 4 News correspondent in India. A plan by some of the biggest football clubs in England, Italy and Spain to form a league of their own, announced on Sunday to surprise and huge opposition, is in tatters this morning after at least six clubs withdrew their support last night with some apologising to their fans. The European Super League would have seen 15 founding clubs receive a £200 to £300 million golden hello to play in a midweek competition from which they could never be relegated. Jonathan Wilson is author and football writer for The Guardian. He's with us now. Uh, Jonathan, you're very welcome to Morning Ireland. Thanks, Hayden. Uh, so for the second time in a few days, Chelsea have beaten Manchester City, this time to be first out the door of the Super League. What just happened and, and why? <laughs> um, I, I think the, the pressures leading to this had been building for a while. I think we've seen greater and greater disparities between the, the big clubs and the smaller clubs. Um, and, and I think a few of us have been predicting for a while that the Super League was the the logical if the logical consequence if the one we we, ne- we didn't want to see happen uh, i think what's really precipitated it is partly the pandemic and the the economic pressure that's placed on clubs uh, but also a sense and this is where it gets complicated from the the traditional elites uh, so the likes of real madrid and manchester united a sense that the the petro clubs if we can call them that the so chelsea manchester city paris saint germain the clubs who are owned by either an oligarch or the sovereign wealth fund of the state and, and a sort of they exist outside the market they're not dependent on the market to, to generate their revenues the the traditional leader have been terrified of them for for several years they hoped that the financial fair play legislation that had been introduced would would keep them in check uh, i think there's been a feeling since last year when manchester city um were initially banned by uefa for breach of ffp regulations and then that suspension was was overturned. I think that brought a sense among the traditional elites that uh, these clubs couldn't be reined in, and so they needed another guaranteed source of revenue. So they put in place the the, the Super League proposals. They then end up having to invite these clubs anyway. Paris Saint-Germain declined the invitation, and I think very sensibly saw the way the wind was blowing. Chelsea and Manchester City go along with it, although they were very clearly the fifth and sixth of the Premier League clubs to sign up, and then they're the first two to, to pull out. So that's that's roughly what's happened. Is it clear, Jonathan, where the money was coming from and, and, and who was going to broadcast these games if it ever happened? It's not clear at all, and that's one of the extraordinary things about this. I mean, we know that JP Morgan had agreed some kind of funding of, well, 3.5 billion euros. As to the, the, the terms of that, we, we don't know that yet. Um, as to who would broadcast it, I, I think that's a huge issue. Uh, so, Joel Glazer... Um, from Manchester United, he, he came out on Sunday and he said that they estimated revenues for this tournament to be €5 billion Euros per year. Now, if you look at UEFA's figures for the last 
Champions League ground before the um, before the pandemic hit, which obviously has, has hit revenues, that was 3.3 billion. So you're talking about a 50% increase. Now, of that 3.3 billion, 2.4 billion came from uh, TV rights. Uh, but Florentino Perez, the president of Real Madrid, who was president of a, of a new league, he said on Monday that one of the reasons they had to take this step was that broadcast revenues were had levelled off and perhaps were, were going to decline. So where do they get from that 3.3 to 5 yeah. if it's not coming from increased broadcast revenues? Now, maybe it would be some kind of streaming platform, but what I thought was really interesting yesterday was when Amazon came out and said, we don't want no part of this, this is not part of our business model. So you then start to think, well, well who on earth is going to do this? So I, I think the whole thing has a sense of being rushed out without much concrete planning. Does this leave the way clear now for a revised Champions League, uh, not next season, but the season after, with two places reserved for, I think they're being phrased, pedigree clubs? Yeah, I mean, on Monday, UEFA voted through the proposed changes for Champions League to begin in 2024. Now, what I think is intriguing about that uh, is that there was a clause in that that said that this is subject to change if the circumstances change. Now, it may be that UEFA think we've, we're giving away too much here. Uh, they've been appeasing the big clubs for 20 years. And Alexander Cheferin, the, the president of UEFA, uh, he was furious in a way you never see something like that furious on Monday. You know, he was calling these clubs snakes and liars. Uh, he really attacked Andrea Agnelli, to whose daughter he happens to be godfather, which you know, complicates everything even more. Uh, he was talking about human values being lost. So I, I think his uh, instinct for appeasement is over. And I think we may see more battles ahead. But, but yes, as you say, as the... As the Proposal stand that were voted for on Monday. It'll be an expanded group stage with more games and these two legacy places these for, for clubs who have done well in Europe in the past, who have a high coefficient but wouldn't otherwise have qualified. Briefly, Jonathan, I suspect you could give a very long answer to this one if you if you wanted to. Why do you think the most vocal opposition came from England? I think English fans are very well organised. I think English fans have a sense of um, of community and of mutual solidarity, which is not there in other countries. Uh, I think the fact that the, you know, the English pyramid has 92 teams in it in the league, plus all the leagues below that, and they're supported to a level that you don't see anywhere else in the world. Um, the, you know, in, in Spain, once you get below the big three, the crowd figures dip off rapidly. So I think England is... Has, I guess because the game began here, because the the, the idea of a league began here, uh, I think you know, that that sense of football as being something for everybody okay. that super clubs are somehow uh, distasteful. I, I think that exists here. So yeah, a combination of that and and the very good organisation of English fans. Jonathan Wilson, pleasure to have you on. Thanks for speaking to us. And it's an important day in the north after long months under lockdown. Some services are reopening. Chief among them for many are hairdressers and barbers. And their reopening has been welcomed across political divides. Last evening, our northern editor, Vincent Kearney, caught up with the First Minister, Arlene Foster, and Deputy First Minister, Michelle O'Neill. And as we'll hear now, when it comes to hair, there's no room for politics. I'm very much looking forward to getting my hair cut uh, and everything else that needs to be done to it uh, tomorrow afternoon. Very much looking forward to that. So my natural uh, hair colour is growing out, so I think it's time that I visit the hairdresser also, so I am looking forward to that on a personal way. When I get my hair done tomorrow morning, that's in advance of getting to the RTE studio tomorrow evening to be on the Late Late Show with Rand Tuberty. So it's all good timing for me. 
was that set up? Is that why you wanted the hairdressers <laughs> open tomorrow? Oh yeah, it's all coming out now. It's all coming out now. Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill joining us in now is our Northern Editor, Vincent Kearney. And uh, Vincent, you're actually in a barber shop in the centre of Belfast. Where are you? I am indeed, Richard. I can feel the envy coming up the line here at <laughs> Belfast. Uh, it's fair uh, radiating <laughs> towards you. <all laughs> it <right>. certainly is. <laughs> uh, it's very fitting in, ter- in terms of radiating. It's a nice, bright, sunny morning here in Belfast, and that matches the mood. There's a real sense of optimism. You say you join me here in Metro Barbers in Belfast. Anyone who knows the city well will, will know where it is. It, it's in a little shopping arcade that runs along the side of the Europa Hotel. We arrived at a quarter past eight this morning. There are already people sitting outside, queued up, waiting to get in. And I'm joined now by the owner, Paul McGill. Paul, you must be pretty pleased today. Delighted. Absolutely delighted. It's been a long four months. And in, t- in terms of the closure, do you feel you were hard done by? I mean, do you feel that maybe hairdressers and other close contact services perhaps could have opened earlier? Well, possibly, but, you know, we just have to take it as it comes. So, you know, we're just happy to be open. That's the main thing at the moment, you know. We'd, we'd like to have been open at the same time as the rest of the UK, but as it happens, it's, uh, you know, it hasn't happened. So we're just happy to be open. That's the main thing at the moment. And in terms of going forward, how important is it this is the last lockdown? It has to be the last lockdown. I mean, uh, the, the, the city can't take another lockdown, so it can't. Um, you just have to look around and, you know, the shop boarded up everywhere. I mean, the town hasn't even officially opened yet. So we're, we're, we're the first sort of section to be opened, which is hard beauty and stuff. Next week, we've got retail, we've got uh, hospitality. So slowly but surely, it's starting to come together again. So, you know, we can't do another lockdown, so we can't. It's as simple as that. As I said, Rachel, some people were queued outside from a quarter past eight. One of them was Paul. I've got him beside me. So, so Paul, why were you here so early? Well, I have a big birthday coming up at the weekend, so I couldn't. I really needed a trim beforehand, so it was worth the queue up. And what's the big birthday? Big four zero on Sunday, my friends. Oh, very nice. Happy birthday from everyone here. And so, as you say, Rachel, a real sense of optimism here and a spring in the step. And things will get even better this day and next week when all non-essential retail will open. At that stage, outdoor dining, including beer gardens, will open. And I'm delighted to say, Rachel, that I have my name on a seat in a beer garden for next Friday afternoon. But more importantly, getting back to today, I'm hoping that the next chair that becomes free here in Metro Barbers might have my name on it. So I'm going to hand back to you in the studio while I go and talk very nicely to Paul. Cheers. Vincent, thank you so much. The envy is real, all right. Hopefully we'll be there before too long. Vincent Kearney, our Northern Editor. Now, the courts here have issued a European arrest warrant for Jerry Hutch in relation to the ongoing Garda investigation into the attack at the Regency Hotel in Dublin in 2016, during which David Byrne was killed. Our crime correspondent Paul Reynolds joins us now. Paul, just remind us of the background to this. Yeah, Audrey, this goes back to the uh, the shooting dead at the Regency Hotel of David Byrne in February of 2016. Uh, that was the third murder in the ongoing Hutch-Kinahan feud, but it effectively escalated that feud uh, into a murderous feud, uh, and so far 18 people have been shot dead. Now, that murder has its roots in the murder of Gary Hutch in Spain in September of 2015, who was the first victim of this feud between two big or two uh, significant organised crime groups. Gary Hutch was the nephew of Jerry Hutch. He's the man known as the Monk. Uh, he, uh, Gary Hutch worked with the Kinahan organised crime group. He was an active member of that group involved in drug trafficking and gun crime, but he fell out with the Kinahan organised crime group and he was targeted 
targeted by that group uh, while he was in Spain. Now, his uncle, uh, Jared Hutch, the leader of the Hutch organised crime group, heard about this. Uh, the Hutch gang tried to save Gary's life. It thought it had negotiated a deal a number of, of years ago to save Gary's life. Money was paid over to the Kinahan organised crime group, uh, but Gary Hutch uh, was still shot dead in Spain in September of 2015. Now, one man has been convicted of that murder there and is serving a sentence in prison. Uh, but the Gardaí believe that uh, Gary, Gary's murder uh, began the feud and subsequently uh, led to the attack at the Regency. They believe that the Regency attack was retaliation by the Hutch organised crime group for the murder of Gary Hutch in Spain and the breaking of what was perceived to be an agreement between two criminal gangs. The target of the Regency was Daniel Kinahan and as, and as we know from the courts here, Daniel Kinahan has been named as a senior figure in organised crime and a senior figure in the Kinahan organised crime group. He was in the Regency for a boxing weigh-in that day uh, but he he uh, he wasn't uh, shot dead by the armed gang that went into the hotel. Uh, another gang member, David Byrne, was shot dead. As a result of that there was intensive retaliation by the Kinhan organised crime group which led to the deaths of, of so many people on the streets of Dublin. There was also an intensive investigation by the Gardaí at Ballymun. Uh, one man, uh, Jared Hutch's nephew, Patrick Hutch, was charged in connection with the Regency attack but he was acquitted at the Special Criminal Court. But that investigation continued and that's led to, to uh, this, this most recent development. Yeah, and you've confirmed that this morning, a European arrest warrant issued for Jerry Hutch. What more can you tell us? Yeah, it's first reported by Paul Williams in the Irish Independent this morning. We have confirmed it uh, from a variety of different Garda sources. There are three reasons why a European arrest warrant is issued. Uh, for somebody in, uh, to stand trial, for somebody to face sentencing after conviction, uh, or for somebody to serve a sentence that's already been handed down, uh, whereby one person is extradited uh, from one European country to another. In this case, the the warrant has been issued uh, for, for, for Jerry Hutch to stand trial. Uh, he's wanted to face a trial in connection with the attack at the Regency Hotel, uh, during which, as I said, David Byrne was shot dead. Now, the European arrest warrant can only be issued by a competent judicial authority, in other words, a judge. Uh, and the offence a person uh, can only be extradited for must carry a term of imprisonment for longer than a year. Now, in this case, the investigating Gardaí went to the High Court, they applied and they secured a European arrest warrant for the arrest of Jared Hutch. Uh, that has now been circulated to Interpol and to European countries. Jared Hutch has been moving around Europe for the past six years. The last time he was seen in Dublin was for the funeral in 2016 of his brother, uh, Eddie Hutch, who was also a victim of the, of the ongoing feud and was targeted by the Kinahan uh, organised crime group. And indeed, uh, the man uh, that um, that Jared uh, that, uh, Hutch was pictured with that day was well, also subsequently became a victim simply because he was s- photographed in the company of Jared Hutch. Um, they, he's, he's believed to be uh, moving between Spain, Central Europe. He's been uh, he's been uh, spotted or identified by by uh, border authorities travelling to Germany. The Gardaí have been monitoring his movements over the over the last number of years, but th- these have certainly been restricted recently due to the COVID pandemic. Uh, there okay. is a co- there is a confidence that he will be arrested. Uh, it will be up to him then whether he decides to contest uh, his extradition uh, in whatever country he is detained in, or waives his right to challenge the extradition and agrees to come back here to face trial. Paul, thank you very much, Paul Reynolds. <laughs> 
To Russia now, where the jailed opposition leader and prominent Putin critic Alexei Navalny has been moved to a prison hospital as supporters voice growing concern about his health. He's three weeks into a hunger strike. While Russian authorities insist his medical condition is satisfactory, private doctors have warned he could die at any moment. The US and EU have warned that they'll hold Moscow accountable for his health. I'm joined by the BBC Moscow correspondent Sarah Rainsford. Sarah, Mr Navalny received a visit from his lawyer yesterday. What did he report later about Navalny's state of health now and indeed state of mind? Well, he was only allowed in to see Alexei Navalny for a few minutes. Uh, this, of course, uh, after, as you mentioned, Mr Navalny had been moved, not just to a prison hospital, but to a different prison altogether. So he was moved uh, some 80 kilometres or so further away from Moscow. Uh, his lawyer managed to get to, to speak to him briefly, as I say. And, and when I spoke to the lawyer after he came out, he said that Alexei Navalny had got really thin. He was very weak. He said, it's clear he's in a bad way. Now, the reason that Alexei Navalny is on hunger strike is that he had um, some health problems, some symptoms he was reporting a few weeks back, uh, of very severe acute pain in his back, uh, numbness in his legs and in his arms. And he started demanding that a, an independent doctor, a doctor he could trust from outside the prison system, be allowed to come in and examine him, which actually is allowed under Russian law. Uh, he was denied that, and so he went on hunger strike. And now those symptoms continue. But on top of that, of course, three weeks of hunger strike are really beginning uh, to take their toll. So he has been taken to the prison hospital, this, this different prison, uh, and uh, he was given an injection of glucose. But certainly his supporters have been saying that his health and the phrase they're using, his life, is hanging by a thread. Are there any indications at all that Vladimir Putin and the authorities might accede to his request for independent doctors? Well, quite the opposite, actually. Um, and in fact, Alexei Navalny again told uh, his lawyer that he'd been told by the prison authorities that it was never going to happen, that the, the, uh, an outside doctor would not be admitted to see him, which is quite uh, extraordinary, really, because it's not that much of a huge demand. As I say, it is something that's permitted by the rules and regulations of the prison system here. Uh, but clearly, this is a battle of wills to some extent. Uh, Alexei Navalny uh, trying, first of all, to get medical help, but also, of course, trying to keep himself in the political spotlight here and the Kremlin trying to do its best to pretend that nothing's happening. The, the spokesperson for, for Vladimir Putin is asked every single morning by his journalists what's happening, what's going on, what's the Kremlin going to do and they sort of say kind of what are you talking about you know this is just any other prisoner he's, he's going to be treated like any other prisoner we're not following we're not even monitoring the situation. Now that of course isn't true they of course are monitoring it but they're certainly trying to play down all these concerns that Navalny's supporters uh, are raising all the time. It does make you wonder does Vladimir Putin care what happens to Navalny after all I mean he is accused of ordering his poisoning in Siberia last year. Well, exactly. If you look at what's happened to Alexei Navalny over the years and the pressure that's now coming, not just against him, uh, which you're seeing directly, as you mentioned, his poisoning last year and, and now this, his imprisonment and now uh, this, this hunger strike, uh, his, his supporters too are under immense pressure and it's increasing all the time. There are uh, moves afoot to, to label anyone who is linked to the two organisations that Mr Navalny has set up, so his anti-corruption foundation, but also his political offices right across the country. All people linked to that uh, could imminently be labelled as extremists by Russia, under Russian law, which basically equates them to Al-Qaeda or ISIS and will obviously have very serious implications for them. So an awful lot of pressure, and I think particularly 
because uh, Alexander Navalny's supporters have called people onto the streets this week on Wednesday night. They want a massive protest in support of Mr. Navalny. And that is no coincidence that that's happening on the day that Mr. Putin himself will address the nation in his annual State of the Nation address. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us from Moscow this morning. The BBC's Sarah Rainsford. Last week, the government's eviction ban, which was linked to the five-kilometre travel restriction rule, came to an end. And this morning, a 10-day grace period also closes, meaning evictions not linked to an inability to pay rent because of the pandemic can take place. Fikra Okyanu reports. So coming home for one of the last few times now, you come in and you see all the things that you took for granted when you were in a house with stability. You see the TV, the kitchen utensils, the kids' toys, and you know you can't fit them in to the boot of your car. Today is a difficult day for John. The COVID-19 eviction ban ends today after a 10-day grace period. And for John who is using an alias to protect his identity. It means a year after his landlord told him he is selling the property, he now fears he will become homeless. It was January 2020. My landlord said he wants to sell the property. Due to COVID, we've had a a certain amount of reprieve, but because of all the fears about it, the rental market around this area has crashed altogether. We'd all accept that we're far from over the COVID crisis. I don't think there's a day that goes by when we don't hear the Minister for Health or another minister telling us. Aideen Hayden is chair of housing charity Threshold. While she accepts the government has extended specific protections until July for people who have lost income due to COVID, Aideen says now is still the wrong time to end the eviction ban for people like John. Ending the eviction ban is incredibly disappointing and very premature. It will put a lot of people at immediate risk of losing their homes. We are looking at, in threshold alone, a thousand cases that we have over from 2020, and not including the cases that we're now dealing with in 2021. We would like to see an extension of at least six months, because we believe it's going to take a minimum of six months for any kind of normality to come back. It's not the full story, of course. Landlords are also affected. It's essential that the market be allowed to return to some normality. We have landlords in financial distress because existing tenants' notice has been paused. Margaret McCormack is spokesperson for the Irish Property Owners Association. People with children that may need to move back into homes haven't been able to do so. We also have tenants who were in rent arrears prior to COVID being protected and landlords at their wits' end under huge financial strain. Okay, let, let me show you around my, the, my home now, for, for the moment. In a different part of Ireland, Tony Geraghty is facing the same problem as John. Tony currently lives in the St Helens Court complex in Dunleary in Dublin. The complex is owned by Donegal firm Mill Street Projects and has recently been the subject of a standoff over redevelopment plans. A mass eviction is planned for today and while rare, it means Tony and his neighbours must move out immediately. We don't really know what's going to happen on the Friday. There's two elderly people who are really sick. I personally had a stroke three years ago. A lot of people here, they're really worried, really scared. We go out that gate with our bags in this present moment. We're living on the streets. Mill Street Projects did not respond to requests for comment from Morning Ireland. But Dunleary Ratdown County Council told this programme social housing supports are available. The competing views of tenants, landlords and more complex cases 
means some believe ending the eviction ban now could replace one problem with another. Here's Sinn Féin's housing spokesperson and TD for Dublin Midwest, Owen O'Brien. Well, the fear many of us have is over a number of months, you will see an incremental increase in the number of families with children presenting as homeless. Those people will be put at increased risk of contracting COVID-19 because they'll be out looking for properties. We want the general ban on evictions and rent increases to be extended until the end of the year. What I would say to landlords is work with your tenants. And what I'd say to government is work with landlords to get forbearance on their mortgages. There are better solutions than simply lifting the blanket ban on evictions. Not so, says Minister for Housing and Fianna Fáil TD for Dublin Fingal, Dara O'Brien. Effectively, since March 2020, there have been very strong additional rental protections. That's over a year now. Less than 2% of tenancies end up in any type of dispute. But in those ones where there's difficulties, and particularly difficulties that people have paying their rent because of COVID, they're going to be protected until the 12th of July. I've got to balance the rights of tenants with the rights of the property owners. And let's remember, nearly 9 out of 10 of every landlord are normal people who own one or two properties. I'm making sure there's no cliff edge here. Officially, no cliff edge. But it doesn't make today any easier for John. I'm at the point where I'm trying to pick out the most valuable things to us as a family and see if I can fit them in the boot of the car because that's the only room I'm going to have. I have to look the girls in the eyes and tell them that's not going to be easy. And that was John ending that report from Fikra O'Kiane. Leo Enright, space commentator, good morning. Leo, how, <laughs> Good how, morning, Mary. how exciting is this mission? The Ingenuity Mars helicopter attempting the first powered, controlled flight on another planet. Yes, indeed, Mary. Ingenuity are known to her friends as Ginny. Um, she should, about uh, 25 minutes ago, have lifted off the surface of Mars, hovered about 10 feet, about three meters uh, above the surface for 30 seconds, and then gently landed back down on the surface of Mars. All done completely robotically. Uh, nobody has spoken to this helicopter since last night. They sent up the instructions to its computer. It was watched by the big, very big uh, Perseverance rover, which moved away from the helicopter to make sure they didn't crash into each other. So we should have video by seven o'clock tonight. Did I read that they have a piece of cloth on board from the Wright brothers flight? You're absolutely right. Uh, The Americans, NASA, are calling this the Wright Brothers moment on Mars. And that, of course, refers to the time when the Wright Brothers took the first uh, heavier-than-air flight in 1903 at Kitty Hawk in North Carolina. Yes, they have a tiny piece of fabric from the Wright Flyer. So this is essentially, Leo, a a technology demonstration, but... The the potential capability here, what is it? Well, I think there's enormous opportunities here, Mary. As you say, it's a, it's a demonstration. It mightn't work. They might The computer might have said stop for some reason, so we might discover it hasn't moved this morning. Um, but it is just a demonstration, and what will follow will be much more dramatic. Um, the Perseverance rover, which is the size of a large family car, uh, its original, its, its predecessor was a tiny little rover the size of my micro 
microwave oven. Now, this helicopter is actually just the size of my tea caddy, the thing that I put tea in for the morning. And that, it will be superseded in future years by much bigger helicopters. But I have to say, Mary, I think this is quintessentially American. Anyone else who wanted to fly on Mars would have sent a hot air balloon. It's cheaper, it's simpler, and we know they work. But the Americans, when they think we're going to fly at Mars, they say, let's build a helicopter. And that's what they've done. All right, Leo Enright, good to talk to you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.